The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Romans 8, 31 to 39. It's where we'll be today at Romans 8, 31 to 39. It's the final message in this series through the greatest chapter of the scripture. Now, just as a little sneak peek, next week we start a short series, just four messages through the book of Leviticus. A series that we're titling, Come and Be Holy. You're like, what, what's that all about? Well, yeah, we're going like from the greatest chapter in the Bible to maybe the most difficult book in the Bible. But I can't wait to get into it, knowing that it's just one of those places where so many go and then in like your annual Bible reading plan, and then it just goes in the ditch and then you quit altogether. And so my hope is to uh, make uh, God's truths and the gospel uh, just come off the page as we work our way through Leviticus. But that's next week. Today, what are we in? Romans 8, right? Romans 8. It's our last message. Like I said, if you're new with us or you missed uh, uh, the, the sermons from the rest of this chapter, they're on our website, on our sermon podcast, and you can find them there. But as this chapter comes to the close here, and as I've been studying this, I really know of no better passage in all of the Bible that, uh, when it's rightly understood, is the answer for both the person sunk in despair and also swollen with arrogance. It is a passage as we uh, come to grips with the uh, never-ending, all-powerful love of God that lifts us out of the pit, but also pushes us off our high horse. Love is there to outshine us, lest we uh, find ourselves trapped in the pits of despair. This lifts us out, or if we find ourselves anywhere there in between. Really, our verses today, they describe for us the implications in the life of our certainty of God's salvation. If you're with us last week or familiar with the verses right before this here, we have a a certainty, a confidence in our salvation that God's grace is at work to save us from first to last. Before we were born until uh, we are there in eternity with him. Since uh, it it's goes to say like since he has secured every detail from first to last to save us. It then brings us to this question. Well, what does that mean for now? How secure are we in him? Is there anything or anyone that can take us out of this certainty? And it asks some summary questions starts with a really a summarizing question. It's okay, well, now that we've taken in all of these truths, the truths that we are not condemned, that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is praying and interceding for us, that we are adopted into God's family and God has graciously saved us. What then shall we say? How then shall we live? What type of confidence do we live in this life? Well, let's read it here. I want to put the verses before us and we'll, we'll, so we see what the word has for us this morning. Romans 8, 31 to 39 say this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word for God's people. Now there's like a resounding amen after we read those verses, isn't there? Like that's like enough said. That's like a, a sermon in itself. Should we all just go home? Maybe we should sing a song or something before we go, but... It's great. These are uh, truths that should elate us of mind and soul and body. But here's the central truth and the takeaway from these verses. If we were to summarize it, if we would uh, try to uh, capture what the Spirit wants for us to take away from it, it is this. You can write it in your notes. It's on the screen here. Walk confidently in the love of God. Based on all that we have seen from the, uh, the chapter here and even summarizes the truths here in the answers, it then leaves us to walk confidently in the love of God. It's already been established in the context that God loves us. The natural question then is, can anything pry us away from it? A day where we can walk in and out of or fall in and out of love. Is this how it works with the Lord? The text gives us today a resounding no. Praise be to God for that, right? A resounding no. And because of this, we have a confidence, a Christian swagger, if you will. Our walk through this life is not just a shuffle. It is not a downtrodden walk, but rather a Christian swagger. Y'all know what a swagger is? I I don't really have it, but uh, some of y'all have it, right? I don't even try to try to do it, but there's this way that we walk through life boasting only of the love of God, not in our own accomplishments, not in our own good looks, not in the success of our team or our school or our project that we just completed on, but we walk with a swagger in the love. We see these things on a page. We've heard messages preached on it. We've read it in the Bible, but fear makes us believe the promises of the world more than the promises of the word. Our own fears might think we have to do more than God calls us to. Our fear entices us into sin. But what we need to do this morning and what the, how the flow of this passage and what Paul is bringing us here at the close with these questions is to let the truths like percolate in our hearts. We've seen the truths. We've seen them week after week here of our justification, of God's love for us. But we can't just let them be words on a page. They have to get into our heart, but not just there, but also propel us into action. And this is really just kind of a fundamental thing in the, in the Christian life, right? Of taking what we know and translating it then into how we live. And I like to think of it like coffee, right? You know, we like coffee around here. Maybe I'll put this up here so y'all can see it a little better here. But make a little coffee here because the truth is often like that. Or here's this uh, cool thing on the screen here. Michael drew this here. He doesn't want credit for it, but I have to give it credit anyways. You can see there like uh, how we take the truth and it has to come into our brain and then come into our heart and out through our actions. And it's often like this. You like pour overs? Some of y'all are drinking them right now. Right? Whoa. 
better be careful here. I got hot things and glass things up here. This could be dangerous here. But the truth of God's word is like the coffee grounds, right? That's what's in this. I know it's a makeup tin, but it's actually coffee grounds, right? And let's just be real. Like not all coffee is created equal or roasted equal, is it? Where the beans are from and how it's roasted and all that. It's the truth of God's word, but just kind of on its on its own here, it doesn't do much of anything and just kind of sits around. We need to actually activate it. Something needs to happen. And so we put the truth in our brain and then the Holy Spirit comes along and he, uh, he uses a messenger, whether it's himself or a preacher or the reading of God's word in our brain. And now all of a sudden these truths begin to marinate, come into our life, good swirling action, not too fast, not too slow. Grounds have been perfectly ground out there by our fantastic coffee team. Some of y'all are going to want this in a minute, aren't you? In, but we consume the coffee, and what does it do? Warms our heart, warms our affections, warms the blood in our body, but then also the caffeine then propels us into action. And that's really what the truth of God's word, as we hear it, as we let these, these truths then like resonate in our mind, coming into our heart, they then lead us and move us then into a greater obedience to live for Christ. In order to do it then, like the, the, the Spirit through the Word of God is asking these questions, letting us think through it, letting it percolate here. Don't spill it, Blair, don't spill it. Put it right there. It's the trouble with like props and all that stuff. You can get a, get a little crazy out here. I think it's good. But as the questions, they begin to percolate in our mind, they then should cause us now to think, well, how then am I living? What fears am I believing? Is there anything unbiblical in what I am thinking about the love of God towards me, about his saving grace towards me, about how he works in me, and what does the Bible have to say about this? Well, in the questions and in the answers, here's the first uh, confident thing that we can say from these verses. As we walk confidently, it is this. Note this from verses 31 and 32. When we fear opposition, we are secure in God's acceptance. Let that percolate for just a moment here. Do you fear opposition? Do you fear those who may come against you? Verse 31 begins, like I said, with a summary question, almost like if he's saying, all right, what do we make of all this? What shall we say to these things? And he says, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, as we're walking through life, we have uh, opponents. And so who, who are opponents? As believers, who are opponents in our life? Let's just be clear about who our opponents are not in our life, all right? Our, our, our opponents are not our spouse, right? Our opponents in our life, those who might be against us, aren't our kids or our neighbors or that coworker, even if they are acting antagonistically against you. For in Ephesians 6, it says, Our struggle, beloved, is not against flesh and blood. See, the people of, of God, uh, people in this world, even though they may be doing things that are against you or opposed to you, ultimately as image bearers, they are not our opponents. They are not our enemies. They are not the ones ultimately against us. They are people needing rescue, not attack. Not, not a, a defense. They are people that need rescuing out of the hatred or whatever it is that is leading them to be our opponents. Who are our opponents then? Well, it's 
you know, traditionally kind of captured in the world, the flesh and the devil, right? The flesh being our sin that ex- exists in us. So who can be of the world, the culture around us, the sin-corrupted culture around us, the sin-corrupted flesh within us, and then obviously our enemy, the accuser here, those things that entice us to believe that sin is more satisfying than following Jesus. That God won't come through in this situation, You are beyond his help and his grace. It it is our opponents that cause us to believe these unbiblical things that you won't have enough in this situation. Your finances are going to come up short. You won't have enough. Uh, uh, God won't get you out of this bind. Everyone is against you. Everybody is out to get you or some other biblical thinking. And while these accusations or these, uh, 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 these charges here, they may come against us, look at the truth that is embedded here. A truth that really captures the previous 30 verses of this. And it's not, it's stated here almost so we can mistake it as something that is in question. Although he's saying it as something is true and then asking the question after it. It is really since God is for us. Church, in this, like, like, look here for just a second. This could be the most revolutionary truth for you uh, even today. God is for you. He's not out to get you. He's not moving things in this world just to like catch you in your sin. Where he's got a moment like, aha, I got you. Ooh, let's see if I can test them in this way and see if they really do love me. No, 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 no. Church, God is for us. Let that percolate for just a moment here. God is for us. Everything he does is for your good and his glory. Nothing that happens in this earth. If anything, what the previous verses has been uh, teaching us is that he is actively moving everything in the world to conform you to the image of his son. Even the difficult things, even the trials, even suffering, even sin that is around. He is using all of these things to conform you to Christ and to bring you safely home. He's not just passively sitting on the sidelines, like cheering us on, like, oh, yeah, I'm for you, you know? No, he is involved and active. Why? Because he loves you. He is for you. How do we know this? What, 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 how, do, how does he prove? Well, we could look at a, a myriad of examples in our life if we were just to pause and think of the blessings and the ways that he has providentially worked in all things in our life. But with the argument here in verse 32, he takes us to the greatest thing. How do we know that God is for us? Because he gave his own son to save us. He didn't spare anything. He gave the most valuable treasure, his own son, who came and lived with us. How would he not then give you the lesser things? How would he not graciously give you the things that you need in every circumstance? How would he not be concerned about the details, the intimate details in your life? No, God is so generous. He is so gracious. He spared no expense to save us. This is the treasure of the gospel, that we who are dead in our sin alienated from God, hateful toward God. He sent his own son when we were his enemies to save us. We see the glory and believe that his death was in our place and his way of living is better. We then walk in that newness of life. And if God did that, who could successfully oppose us? What, what could be said against us? What, what could pry us away from these things? What could be brought against us? No, God is for us, church. 
You believe it today? Look at your neighbor. Tell him if you're in Christ, if you believe the gospel, look at your neighbor and say, God is for me. Tell him that right now. Look at him. God is for me, babe. He's for me. See, he is who could, like when we fear this opposition, no, you are secure in his acceptance all through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can walk confidently in that. But there's a second step of confidence we can take. Look at what, the, uh, what it says in verse 33. See, here we could summarize it this way. It says, when we fear accusations, we are secure in God's justification. All right, we have these opponents. Well, what are they saying against us? In verse 33 here, now you picture like a courtroom scene where charges or accusations are being leveled against God's beloved or his elect. Look what it says. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Like, a, like I said, picture the courtroom scene. And now there's accusers, there's some coming. The elect here, it's just, I know sometimes we get like squirrely with terms like these. What does it mean? Am I or am I not here? Elect is a biblical term for those who God loves. Those whom he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. It's not synonymous with like the elite, right? It's based on no skill or no merit or no extraordinary faith that we possess, but all on God's grace to save us. Who can bring a charge? Who can bring an accusation? But the reality of life, there are all kinds of accusations. The key is they're unsuccessful. That's what he's coming at here. He's not saying these are like Paul's out of touch with reality in all this. He's saying they're unsuccessful. God has done the greater work to secure us by justification. But there are, there are all kinds of accusers that rise up to make us doubt that God loves us. There? We have our own internal accusations, right? Those thoughts that, that rise up, those insecurities that exist within us that make us think like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. They're not going to love me, God. Like, I crash, whatever it might be. There's outward accusations. Those that hurl those, those charges against us, like, you're a Christian? I, I know what you're really like. I know who you used to be. I know the things that you said. I laugh at our faith. Charge just like, ah, I don't know if God loves you. There's those demonic accusations. There's things, uh, internal things that the enemy just loves to just bash us down with, laying out our sins before us. Yeah, you did that. Oh, you're going to have to pay for that. If they really knew that about you, then, man, what would they think? Oh, like God's not going to love you for this. Don't, don't, don't confess that. Don't. And he just lists it all out. In our own mind, before God's throne, it's like we see in Job, we have these accusations. They're just leveled against us. And here's the reality, church. We aren't good enough reality is our sins are many and more wretched than we even give credit to, more than we would even be uh, 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 willing to admit. Jesus took care of that, didn't he? Even when Satan tempts us to despair, like we sang in the song, even when uh, we are well aware of the things that are being brought against us, even when they are true, we can in those moments, you say, you know, you're right. And actually, I'm a lot worse than the accusations that you're bringing against me. But Jesus took care of that. He took care of it. Look, it says the answer to that, it is God who justifies. A simple answer that captures a, a, a massive truth in the scriptures. 
when these accusations are brought against us, but you, you know what? I've been declared righteous before God. I know I have all that, but Christ took it on the cross and now he gave me his righteousness. So bring whatever charge against me you want. You can accuse all day and all night, but the verdict has already come. This son, this daughter, you are saved, righteous, loved of God, secure because of God's justification. And this church gives us some swagger, doesn't it? Not to continue just to walk in our sin, not just to continue in this way, but to walk with confidence. We allow the truths to percolate in our minds and to propel us forward here. We need not fear any accusation that any might level against us, including ourselves. But it goes a step further. The steps even get more solid, more secure, more certain as we go deeper into the text. Look at what it says in verse 34 here. See, when we fear condemnation, we are secure in Christ's work. Like with the accusations here, there's a separation. Charges or accusations are still kind of open-ended. The evidence of them. Where do we start Romans 8? Look at verse 1. Somebody read it aloud. I want to hear your voice say it. Somebody read it with confidence, with Christian swagger. Somebody read it or I'm going to call on you. That's right. That's a good, that's a good uh, summary of it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can condemn? No condemnation. Why? Why? Because we have a divine defense attorney. Look at Christ's work. Come back to verse 34. Who is to condemn? And he comes back here. They can, yes, we've been found guilty, but are we, but the verdict has not, or we were guilty in our sin, but we've now been set free. Christ Jesus, the one who died, but not only that, what did he do? He was raised. And where is he right now? The right hand of God. What is he doing right now? Interceding for us. The work of Christ complete. What did he do in the past? He died and rose again. Dying the death in our place, condemned in for us. He stood and rose again, securing the, the victory on our place. And what is he doing now? He's seated at the seat of power, at the right hand of God, orchestrating all things uh, on this earth, ruling and reigning over all the details of it, and interceding or praying or advocating for us right now. We need not fear condemnation because we are secure in Christ's work. But listen to this section from Gentle and Lowly. Many of you I know have this book here. I'm just going to read it. It's from the chapter titled To the Uttermost. Listen to this quote. It says, what is intercession? In general terms, it means that a third party comes between two others and makes a case to one on behalf of the other. Think of a parent interceding to a teacher on behalf of the child or an agent interceding to a sports franchise on behalf of an athlete. What then does it mean for Christ to intercede? Who are the parties involved? God the Father on the one hand and we the believers on the other. And why would Jesus need to intercede for us? After all, haven't we been completely justified already? What is there for Christ to plead on our behalf? Is that intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. 
atonement is Christ's death on our behalf and his resurrection. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work, not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. Atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession then is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. In the past, Jesus, what he did, uh, did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did in the past. And this is why the New Testament weds justification and intercession, such as in our passage here, Romans 8, 33 through 34, end quote. See, Christ went to the full lengths, to, first to last, by his grace to save us. Now, there's another place in the scriptures that talks about Christ's intercession, his uh, praying for us. It's in Hebrews 7. Here it's on the screen. You can look up it in your Bible or just see it here and look what it says. Consequently, this is speaking of Jesus. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what does uttermost mean? Kind of one of those words we don't use on, uh, on the daily, do we? Uttermost means completely or for all time, for all good here. See, from first to last, God's grace is at work to save us. Christ is able to save. And what is he doing now? Interceding on our behalf. But note this also. Who else is interceding for us as we saw in Romans 8? The Holy Spirit interceding for us as well. We have powerful family members securing this work, both working on our behalf to propel our faith forward. The Holy Spirit praying or interceding sympathetically, knowing our weaknesses, knowing the uncertainty that we have about life and about the will of God. He's praying inwardly for us. And Jesus now at the throne, graciously keeping all the focus on him and his righteousness and not our sin so we know the power of prayer we know the soul strengthening that happens when a brother or sister prays for us right like in those moments when we're feeling weak or we're confused or whatever it is and we say hey brother hey sister come and pray for me I'm, I'm encouraged. I get texts like this uh, regularly from you just saying, hey, praying for you. The Lord put you on my mind. Can I pray for you? And absolutely, there's just a soul strengthening that happens to know that God is putting me on somebody else's mind. But let this sink in right now. Right now, at this moment, Jesus is praying for you. What's he doing now? Is he just up there like, you know, playing the daily wordle? for you. He continues to pray on our behalf. Listen to this quote again. I want to read it. It's from D.G. Barnhouse, a pastor and theologian from a different era in, uh, uh, in England. And he says this, let this sink in for a moment. He says, you do not have a problem too great for the power of Christ. You do not have a problem too complicated for the wisdom of Christ. You do not have a problem too small for the love of Christ. You don't have a sin too deep for the atoning blood of Christ. One of the most wonderful phrases ever spoken about Jesus is that which is found on several occasions in the gospel. It is that Jesus was moved with compassion. He loved men and women. He loves you. Do you have a problem? He can meet it. It does not matter what it is. The moment that the problem comes to you in your life, he knows all about it. 
If there is a fear in your heart, it is immediately known to him. If there is a sorrow in your heart, it is immediately a sorrow to his heart. If there is a grief in your heart, it is immediately a grief to his heart. If there is a bereavement in your life or any other emotion that comes to any child of God, the same sorrow, grief, or bereavement is immediately written on the heart of Christ. For we find written in the word of God, in all their afflictions he was afflicted. Isaiah 63, 9 and end quote. Christ sympathizing graciously. He is praying for us, meeting us in the need. And so what, is this, what does this mean? When condemnation comes, when those thoughts in our own mind, when our thoughts from others, when thoughts from the enemy come our way, when these charges are brought against us, our reply is and always will be, Jesus took care of that. Jesus took care of that. When it's seeking to drag us into the pit, when we, when we aren't believing it, we now point our eyes to Christ. We look to the throne. We can sing the bridge that we sang in Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, O my soul. Your love is my reward. For fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. That's not a future reality. That's a right now reality, church. These are truths to sink deep in. These are truths to let percolate and let move us in our life. There, there are steps here that, we, that lead us to take uh, confident steps towards the Lord and towards his love and not farther away from it. For it only gets more. When we fear separation, we are secure in God's love. We need not fear any opposition, nor any accusations, nor any condemnation, nor any separation. They may come our way, but the key is they are unsuccessful. Unsuccessful. For God has done the greater work. Now look at these lists here. It's like I said, it's like a crescendo. It's like Paul is bringing us to a resounding end here in these things. He says, who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? He's already just gone to the say from first to last in the previous verses, everything, is there then anyone? The irony is he says who, but then the lists all describe what. They all describe what's like, who shall separate us? Can your wife, can your kids, can your neighbors, can, you know, the, the, the grumpy person sitting next to you? Or, no, no. But he's referring here to the enemy behind him. Sometimes I think we do personify our, our troubles and our trials here. And he talks about these visible things. There's a list here, another one in verse 38. And so it's like these visible threats that, that uh, threaten to separate us and, and, and these invisible ones. And so he just kind of like uh, lays them all out here in like categories here, these tribulations, those times where we feel pressed down and crushed, where the weight of the world, the weight of responsibility is pushing down on us. Can these things, can they separate us? What about the stress, the idea of being like confined in a narrow space where we feel trapped, trapped in a job, trapped uh, because of, uh, of our sin where we can't get out, trapped, trapped. Can these things separate us from the love of Christ? What about persecution when we're harmed because of our faith, because of our Christian convictions, because of our belief, because we are in Christ, we are harmed or fired or whatever it might be. Can this separate us from the love of Christ? What about a, a famine where we lack food? We're so poor, we can't afford uh, clothes, famine, nakedness, these hardships of life where we can't afford the basic realities. Not like the nightmares that many people have, like, you know, showing up to work without any clothes on or anything. That's not what he's talking about. The hardships, the dangers, just the general risks in life. 
things that happen that just, you know, accidents, they're at work or in the car or whatever it might be. We're sword, where we're, like our life is taken from us, where somebody is literally attacking us. That's what he's getting at here, where we're murdered or martyred. This is a reality for the Roman believers that he's writing to. And these things separate us. See, even, even as we ask the question, verse 36, he quotes Psalm 44, 22, to make us uh, realize that this is not like new to us. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You're like, why is he quoting that? What is it? What's he getting at here? What he's telling us, he expect to suffer. Expect these threats in our life. It is always expected. We're in good company. We should expect it. These things are happening in our life. We should. And, and just to, to prove how strong God's love is, yes, these are the things that we maybe experience on the daily, out in the open, the physical threats to, uh, to our salvation and our love and relationship with God. But what about the invisible, the unseen things? Look at verse 38. They're like in these couplets, like, can death nor life, the, the, the totality of our human experience and existence, he's captured. Can anything there separate us? What about angels or rulers or, or, or should be known as like demons? Like, can the whole force of the spiritual realm separate us from the love of Christ. Angels won't. Demons can't. So good there. What about things present or things to come? The totality of our circumstances, what we're walking in now or anything in the future, do we have to fear? Can it separate us from the love of Christ? What about anything with power? Lone pair, uh, uh, you know, thing here, no pair here. Every authority on heaven and earth about height or depth, the totality of the universe. From the skies above to the bottom of the ocean, anything there, could we find anything in all of the universe that could separate us from the love of Christ? It can't be no tumbo. No, 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 no. For I am sure. Nothing nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Is there anything else you could think of? You might fill in the blank. Well, what about this? Another one of those crowbars that just try to like pry us in and to pry us away and to separate us. Verse 37 says, no, they're unsuccessful. No, in all these things. Look at it. In all these things. All these things, the lists here, the things that come against you, anything, all these things were defeated. All these things, the jury is still out. What does it say? We are more than conquerors, literally super conquerors. In other words, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but life doesn't feel that way, right? No, I'm worn down fighting against this sin. No, I'm worn down uh, in, in uh, trying to uh, beat back these accusations that are in my mind. I'm worn out. Well, then don't miss what it says. It's not our victory here necessarily that we are conquering, but we are more than conquerors through what? Through him who loved us. Church, is there anything that could happen to you this afternoon, tomorrow, 10 years from now? It would separate you from the love of Christ. 
all the threats have been conquered, all attempts to separate us unsuccessful. Though we, uh, thus we now live in the conquering power of Christ's love. Now we walk forward with that swagger, both in our life and on our mission. See, it, it's as if it is, it is so strong. Can, can anything separate the Trinity? Can anyone think separate the love of the Father for the Son and the Spirit? No, and with that same resolve, with that same confidence, so we too, uh, nothing can separate us. Nothing can pry us out of their hands like a little girl with her favorite toy. Even the littlest of kids. Savannah's like one, and she gets like one of her favorite toys in, and her brother and sister come along. You think they're getting out of that death grip? Absolutely not. The same way Christ holds us in his death grip, his death on the cross for us. He never will. We are completely, perfectly loved by God right now. Nothing we can do will ever diminish that or increase it. He loves us despite all of that. This is an extravagant, unconditional gift of love that he has given to us, is it not, church? One we need to remind ourselves of often, promises that we need to rehearse daily to conquer any doubts or discouragement or deceptions that we might have or opposition or accusations or condemnation that may come our way. So this confidence leads us deeper in, not farther away, deeper into the things of God, deeper in. And so we, we love the Lord and then we share it with others. Makes us champion this love of God to others uh, in the same way that we would champion the love that we have for our spouse and we would champion a godly marriage to others who are getting married. We would champion this to others. God commissions us on this mission with the message. These truths percolate in our heart. They're not things that just warm us and like, oh, that's nice in the Bible, but they move us forward, well caffeinated and energized with a swagger of we are loved and we are sent to the glory of God. Ultimately, these are truths. These are things that we love, and we remember them as we take communion. We see reference in the passage, all this was sealed, it was proven, it was borne out and given to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why he gave us this uh, ordinance as an ongoing reminder, not a yes to look at our life and to see, is there sin in me? Am I right with God? And as we do so, then to lead us to worship God. Not just a sorrowful, morose thing we do, like, oh, uh, celebrate, but a, a means to celebrate, to proclaim Christ's death until he comes, until he returns. So as an act of worship today, we're going to take communion, we do so, uh, uh, relishing in the love that God has for us, taking it with confidence, knowing that Christ's work is complete uh, on our behalf. Let me pray to prepare our hearts and we'll take communion together. God in heaven, here we are. Your people, loved by you, bracing your acceptance, bracing your goodness to us, bracing your, uh, the security that we have because of your work on the cross, Jesus. So Lord, would you let these truths not just be something that, uh, that, that we go in one ear and out the other, but would we live confidently in it today? Confident, regardless of the insecurities that are within us or uh, outside of us, causing us to doubt. But we come before you full of faith, full of love, 
full of confidence that you, Christ, did this for us. God, you are so great. We love you all the more because of it. We pray now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.